Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Mack Weldon. Yeah, it's time to talk underwear, people. With their smart design, premium fabrics, and the simple shopping experience, Mack Weldon underwear is definitely better than whatever you are wearing. I say you because I'm rocking Mack Weldon right now, and it's making me fly like an eagle. I feel like uh, I'm 10 feet tall. I don't know why. It's just something about it. In addition to looking great and feeling great, all Mack Weldon products are crafted with natural fibers that have built-in performance capabilities, so they work hard too. They even have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. All that, and they're shipped right to your door. You don't have to go down and be like, where is your underwear underwear section, sir? I would like to, to purchase some. If you don't like your first pair from Mack Weldon, keep it. They'll still refund you, no questions asked. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first purchase using promo code WATCH. Today's episode of The Watch is also brought to you by Redbox Schools Out for Summer. And Redbox has the video games to keep you entertained. With over 40,000 locations nationwide, you can rent and return anywhere. And better yet, you'll get a free one-night game rental from Redbox when you use the promo code WATCH. Swing by a box in your neighborhood, or if you want to make sure the game you want is there when you arrive, reserve it online at redbox.com games. Offer is valid through July 6th, 2017, and is subject to additional terms. Charges apply for additional nights. Payment card required. Getting into video games has never been so easy. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm editor at TheRigger.com and joining me in the studio, Luke, we're going to have company. It's Andy Greenwald and Sean Fennessy. Hey, man. Hey, what's going on? Nobody else is in the studio with us. No, no, it is not take my daughter to work day. I promise you. Just the three of us here sitting quietly. Um, Guys, welcome to The Watch, the re-up, the Thursday edition of America's favorite non-binge mode podcast. (laughs) My name is Chris Ryan. I'm joined by two of my favorite people in the whole wild wor- wide world. I like that you did the loud intro, now you're doing the like the NPR intro. I'm just excited to see you guys. I the wanted heads. to get Sean on because initially we mm-hmm. were going to have Sean just talk about his 25 best movies of the millennium. Let me be clear. When we did that as a lark... In the words of Richard Ford, let me be frank. I We did that as a lark on Monday. It was... First of all, very fun, yeah. and it's been great seeing people respond with their list. Keep Thanks it so much for your responses. Thanks for the people who reminded me of Master and Commander, Far Side of the World. Great film. Did someone put that on their list? Yeah, shame on them. Some I respect people that. were really ca- catering but, to Greenwald. They'd be like, what about Short Term 12, man? <laughs> <laughs> what about it? Thank God someone mentioned it. But let me also just say, when I did that, I knew there would be a little knock, knock, knocking on our podcast door. From editor-in-chief Sean Fennessy. This is not the case. I asked Sean. Chris Chris asked me. But I, that said, in my mind, as I was listening to the podcast, I was like, I want in. I want to be a part of this. I want to be inside the mainframe as two of the best out. As the hives erupted on your body due to our terrible cinematic choices. No, I I, I, I thought it was interesting. But we, we, we can get to that later. Yeah, okay. we're going to get to the 25 best, Sean's 25 best movies, and we'll talk a little bit about that list. But first, we wanted to talk about the news coming out of, of uh, Lucasfilm this week, which is that... Uh, with only a few more weeks until the completion of principal photography, right? the folks over at Lucasfilm, namely Kathleen Kennedy, have gotten rid of the Han Solo standalone film directors. You don't remember their named? names, do you? No, I don't. I just, I, the problem <laughs> they're, they're, is, is that I... Their names are Star-Lord. You know what it is? They are named Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Yeah. 
And I, I got confused there because you guys have gotten into my head about whether it's Phil Miller and Chris Lord. This is... This is this is really big news. This wasn't like we hired somebody, had three meetings with them, and we've mutually decided to go our own way. This isn't Josh Trank 2.0. No. This is not we hired this is an not in over his head lunatic. On Ant-Man, this is not Ava DuVernay on Black Panther. This is not like we had a few meetings. Maybe there was some preliminary paperwork the, or whatever. The, these are guys who have a distinct point of view and also have an enormously successful track record at the box office. Um, whether you like it or dislike them, we can talk about that in a second. It is both sort of it is shocking because directors don't get fired very often this far into production. Yeah. They may be um, quote unquote removed later, like Gareth Edwards was on Rogue One. Well, he wasn't removed. They just well, brought Tony Gilroy right. in to do some rewrites and to reportedly do some interior reshoots. Semantics. Yeah. But he still had his name on the movie as the director. This doesn't happen that often, but this does feel to me, and I think this is one of the topics we should get into, as an inevitable. Uh, this is where this is where this was headed. The way franchises are being stewarded, right? And before I cede the floor to a cinephile and someone with the hottest take this side of the lava planet where Anakin became Darth Vader, (laughs) shouts the prequel trilogy, um, I just want to say that this strikes me more than a bad business decision as an extremely Los Angeles decision. What I mean is people in this town like go to burger places and order sushi. You know what I mean? There's a restaurant in West Hollywood called Hugo's where there's a 40-page menu and then at the end of it, it's literally Kramer on Seinfeld doing movie phone. Why don't you just tell me what you'd like to eat? <laughs> and my feeling is, if you hired Star-Lord and Chris Miller to make a Han Solo movie, you y- y- bought it. You know what I mean? Make, let them make their movie. It's not like you're buying an, like a, a, you know, a, a calm tactician or someone who's just going to execute the plays on the field. You're not hiring Colin Trevorrow, who just seems to... Should, by the way, who shouldn't be left to his own devices, apparently. Judging by... What was the name of this movie he made? The Book of Henry... You hire guys because people like what they do and they know how to do it. And then you change your mind midstream. And that just seems absurd to me. Now now I'll see the floor. It actually feels like a very old-fashioned decision. You know, this is something that happened a lot more frequently in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. You know, yesterday I was just talking about, like, Tombstone, for example. Shot principal photography for six weeks with a filmmaker. They realized that person was completely wrong for the project. And then sort of under cloak and dagger, uh, Kurt Russell took over the directing of the film uh, you know, I mentioned the island of Dr. Moreau too. Oh yeah, where the, that filmmaker was removed, and then John Frankenheimer was brought in, kind of halfway through, and that was a quagmire. This doesn't happen as frequently, but we know that in the Star Wars universe, this isn't the first time that they've had some issues. Yeah. You guys mentioned Gilroy coming in for Gareth Edwards. Also, as we know, like J.J. Abrams really kind of found the Force Awakens in the editing room. And he they shot a ton of he footage. He should have put it back. Yeah, well, I, well, that was a story where Michael Arndt, who wrote Little Miss Sunshine and Toy Story, had been working on Force Awakens for a while. The reports were that the main character of Force Awakens was still Luke. Mm-hmm. You know, the the infamous never released or even shot. I don't know if it was shot, but the opening shot of Force Awakens was supposed to be Luke's hand with a lightsaber in it mm-hmm. falling out of the sky out Through of space. space. Yeah, yeah. Um, that one had issues. You have. The, the Gareth Edwards, Tony Gilroy issues. You've got Trank being fired off of whatever the movie he was initially sort of talked about on. I think it was, was I think it Boba, Boba Fett. Boba Fett movie. Boba yeah. Fett. Look, I mean, th- there's a couple things here. And, and I made a snide comment about J.J. Abrams in Force Awakens. What, what I meant was I think we do have a collective amnesia about that movie. I think it succeeded from a corporate standpoint. And I think a lot of us had a good time in it. And the young stars were really good. As a movie, the way we used to talk about movies, I think it's mostly a failure. It, it was a great movie in 1977. Yeah, right. Yeah. But 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 you know, this is basically 
we have to switch hats. If we're talking from a corporate perspective, Star Wars is one of the most valuable brands in the this galaxy as well as many other galaxies far, far away. Probably the most. They need to be reasonable managers of this, the same way you'd want like someone at Merrill Lynch being a reasonable manager of your income. And I guess they flirt with wanting to be creative with it, but at heart, they don't want to be creative with it. They just want to make the original trilogy again and again and again and give people the same hit of the same stuff, right? Well, it's possible. I think that this series probably needs its David Yates. So David Yates, initially when Harry Potter, the series started, it started by Chris Columbus, which you could say is the the J.J. Abrams analog, right? And then they went through a series of, we're going to have Quaron direct, we're going to maybe use edgy directors who bring their own sensibility to the source material. And then they settled on David Yates, who was a safe pair of hands, who made incredibly entertaining, clear, comprehensible movies one after another and delivered them relatively close to what they in a way that was sean i don't know if you'd agree with this but that was one of the first examples of them saying like you know what this is a tv show yeah let's make a tv show right let's get one guy to direct it um who knows what he's doing who's gonna you know hit hit his marks hit his budget and people will be fine with it and we're not gonna get too high but we know we're not gonna get too low there's a big difference between those two things though which is just that harry potter was an established universe with an endpoint that people knew about from the books that were clear from the mm-hmm. world i've heard you guys talk a lot over the last couple of years about the promise of the star wars universe and doing these stories mm-hmm. doing a boba fett movie doing a han solo origin movie which is really interesting and it should theoretically be able to be done by filmmakers who have different tones who have different looks different styles but that's not what we're getting yeah, I mean, I think the the initial idea, at least the way Chris and I understood it, and maybe audiences in general did, is that they were going to make this new trilogy to be the spine of the universe, but then they were going to branch off of it, and there were going to be chances taken. And to be fair, whatever Rogue One was potentially going to be, whatever it could have been... It's supposed to be a war movie. But it, the last 30 minutes of it were different. They were, you know... Yeah. They, 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 they did have a different spirit and tone, and, and it was worthy. Mm-hmm. But I, I think if there's one thing that's sort of dogging this, and, you know, they've brought Ron Howard in to finish... Han Solo. But if there's one thing that's dogging these movies right now, it's a comprehensibility problem. It's that there seems to be, you've got Lawrence Kasdan, you've got these good screenwriters, Michael Arndt, Tony Gilroy, working on these movies. And then you have uh, a little bit of a feeling like that they are, they are being Benny Hanad into something that's ready to, for a release date. So you have a lot of like third acts that barely make sense and, you know, uh, people going from planet to planet really quickly in ways that you're just like, oh, wait, was that planet next to that planet? There's just very basic storytelling things here that feels like there might be a little too many cooks in the kitchen. Although, apparently, Kathleen Kennedy is the only chef that matters. Now, I guess here's my question. So if this is a franchise that has a comprehensibility problem in the first place, I guess my question is why hire Phil Lord and Chris Miller? Because these are guys who they've produced a lot of stuff. They've been rumored to be a part of Spider-Man movies or The Flash. I mean, they obviously are considered um, mainstream blockbuster filmmakers, even though I would say most of their stuff feels like you're trapped in an elevator with somebody on Adderall. Yeah, I think the fact that they were able to translate the Lego movie and 21 Jump Street into saleable properties makes them appealing to a big company like Disney, to Lucasfilm, to whoever is shepherding the project along. But their movies are really strange, and they take a lot of risks. Their TV shows are really strange, and they take a lot of risks. I think this movie might have made a little bit more sense with a Lord and Miller script directed by Ron Howard. That might have been a more seamless mm-hmm. execution of this. But, you know, Kathleen Kennedy has a reputation as a very focused, controlled, specific, old-school Hollywood producer. Who tends to work with veteran filmmakers. Yes. And so when you take these risks, as we've seen, and this is a story that started 
you know, five years ago, and Marvel made a lot of inroads in sort of plucking people from very small independent backgrounds and forcing them in. Lord and Miller are a little bit different from that. They're not sure. quite Colin Trevorrow taking on Jurassic World, but there's something like there's something like it, and it, this is different for mass market IP. Here's- we also the idea that they were going to like find this movie in the editing room, and that they were reportedly shooting lots of different kinds of takes, and that there was a like a kind of manic comedy element to this character, and that that was turning off people like Kasdan, who were like, this is not supposed to be slapstick. By the way, Kasdan is kind of low-key the one who's either saving this or messing it all up for other people, right? Well, reportedly, his script for Han Solo was, you know, according to anonymous sources, the best Star Wars script ever written. That's what that oh, was. Oh, so that, Lord Miller like, jumped on and started doing donuts on it and commenting on the commenting. Look, we'll the, never know. He, he, here's, I think, also why people are upset on the about commenting. it. Here's the only reason why I think people are upset about this, not just because it feels like their favorite toys are breaking, literally. Um, it's not necessarily an allegiance to the sensibilities of 21 Jump Street, which, by the way, is, is a really strong, very good movie. It's really funny. Um, it's, it's like, but that's it, like six jokes. It's not a movie. No, I, I think that one is a movie. But my point is this: the photo that was released with all of them having a wonderful time on the Millennium Falcon with Alden Ehrenreich and Woody Harrelson just seemed like what we wanted to feel. And this this event seems to have ripped that photo in half, like Sinead O'Connor on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, we do have a tendency to get very upset prematurely about things that we didn't get, like the Edgar Wright Ant Man. Like you know, uh, we'll never know what it was like before this got taken away by the corporate overlords. Yeah, personally, I was anticipating this movie, but I wouldn't say I was over the moon for it. I think people like Donald Glover getting cast for it amplified our anticipation. Um, I think that there's only so much that Ron Howard's going to be able to change at this point anyway, so we're probably still going to get a lot of that feeling, even if you're not going to get a lot of the zaniness. This is just the the cost of doing business. You know, Star Wars is more valuable to Disney than almost anything they have in their entire portfolio. So we find ourselves with the director of Cinderella Man... Uh, working with Donald Glover. <laughs> it's, it's an amazing thing. I would like to say more valuable than anything in their portfolio since they shut down Grandland. Well, that's a that's a whole other story. That's a whole other podcast. Um, <laughs> oh, everyone thinks that's too funny to laugh on air? Oh, okay. Should we talk should we talk TV for a minute? Let's before we go back Fargo. to movies? Yeah, man. Um Fargo ended its third season. Yeah. Um this was very interesting. I think that um, I actually haven't read that much critical opinion about it, but the vibe I got was that people were worried about the show early on and then came back hard and got really into it. Chris, we last talked about it after the eighth episode, which remains, I think, having seen them all now, the best episode of the season. Yeah, I really It had the high point one. of action. It had the best Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who was probably the best performer of the season and certainly the most memorable character. And then it also had the trippiness with the bowling alley scene. That was Fargo at its best in all across the board. Uh, performance, cinematic action, and cinematic strangeness. Um, I thought the rest of the season was kind of a miss. And I was thinking about why, and we talked about why some uh, to some degree before in terms of like, I just didn't feel for any of these characters. I didn't buy into the world. I was thinking about the argument that I wanted to make, and what I realized was I think you can, you can not only defend every creative choice made this season and make it sound very worthwhile. But I think some of the creative decisions in a vacuum sound incredibly inspired and are, in a vacuum, sound like the correct responses and the correct choices to make in light of what TV has been doing, in light of what the previous two seasons did. Unfortunately, I think the season was a collection of inspired creative decisions without the emotional connective tissue to make them feel 
meaningful or or resonant on a TV level. Um, I didn't love these people. I didn't mm-hmm. want to be in this world. It, like David Thewlis is one of our great actors. He's genius. That character was a was a monstrous, brilliant creation. But I didn't want ten hours of him. You know, it was a tough hang for ten hours. It was a cinematic performance stretched. You know, and and, and I've heard actors say this before. Like I. Actors who say, you know, I love actually movies because I have two hours to give it my all. And I'd have to modulate that if I was playing this character for 10 hours or 40 hours sure. or God forgive them 100 hours. Everyone was bringing it to a degree, but it it this, it didn't hang together. Yeah, I thought it was a, a season that really only found itself at the very last moment. So I felt like he was almost writing into that last scene between Thulis and uh, between Vargo and Gloria. And this discussion about what what's real and and what do we you know and she's like well here's a photograph this is real and he's mm-hmm. like is it you know and he, we, they start to talk about the nature of this based on a true story idea that mm-hmm. this this show is about but I didn't feel like the rest of the season was necessarily I felt like that should have been the first scene of the entire season you know what I mean there was something about thematically where it wound up that I felt felt like it didn't actually reflect that over the course of the season. Well, I felt like that conversation at the end, and I love the ambiguity at the end, but I think that conversation was, those are, it's a great idea. They were mm-hmm. well-voiced. All the speeches were well-considered, you know, but I didn't buy them in that moment. I didn't feel, I didn't feel they were earned. I, I felt that the, the character, the concept of Varga as this representative of this corporate nothingness that is going to devour all of us, this wolf, um, it's well-considered. It's a great idea for a villain. I not sure I got why he was in Minnesota for five months. You know, just these little niggling kind of TV things that I feel like with a little buffing or polishing or softening, it would have made more sense. I don't know if, if Carrie Coon's performance and as written Gloria Burgle was the avatar for American values and decency that she was presented as in the end. Yeah. Um, there wasn't enough of her or there wasn't enough angles or layers to her to buy that. She just was a figurehead for that, delivered the speeches of that persona. And then we could just sort of take it, but it never penetrated to me. Yeah, I agree with a lot of what you guys said um, early on in the season too, which was that she was somewhat miscast, and her sort of general tone as an actor wasn't totally right for that universe. But the the moment when it started to work for me was in the ninth episode, and not the eighth. I actually thought the eighth episode was kind of a mess, and Chris and I talked about it afterwards, and I was like, this just feels like a really effortful reach towards meaning in a show that really does not have a lot of meaning this season. Did uh, you do an after show for our podcast? <laughs> yes, we did. We did a little post game. It might cheated. have been a pregame. I think I was just like, Fargo was great. I think he was like, no. And I was like, no. Yeah. But in I nine, yeah. I, I think Mary Elizabeth Winstead, what she did and what Thulis did together on the show was the most interesting thing because that was also the one time Thulis was really on his heels throughout the show was in that showdown in the hotel room yeah. or in the hotel, hotel that lobby. That was a great scene, yeah. And... That made it click a little bit more for me. It made me believe in her character. It made me believe in his vulnerability as a character. And it made the show, it created stakes in the show. It became a show that, in which like a sniper rifle was as meaningful as a, a conversation about a bag full of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of the middle ground of Fargo is like, it's a little bit ethereal. It's a little bit weird. It's a little bit bound in the real world. It's a little bit true, true crime. Um, you know, this season is was less effective than the first two to me, but... Still, you know, you don't get a lot of Vargas on television these days, so I'm, I appreciate it even if it's a little over the top. So the one thing that's interesting by saying you don't get a lot of Vargas on television is this idea that we did in Fargo, right? That we had Lorne in the first season, that there were elements of this in the second season of this sort of 
evil that goes beyond just organized crime, that there is something about greed and corruption and violence that exists inside of men and that, that there's a figure that can come across this ordinary landscape and trigger that mm-hmm. in people. And it was interesting to read a few things with Noah after this episode, some of which were kind of codas for the series because he's like, I don't know if I'm ever going to go back to this. But he seemed almost beholden not only to still the Cohen brothers, which I thought was really interesting. He was still talking a lot about the Coens in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the interviews, but also the mythology of Fargo, the television show. Where he was like, you know, I, I might do another one, but it, you know, I'd have to come up with another crime, and it would have to have these archetypes in the show that to, to sort of be Fargo. And I thought I was I was actually kind of disappointed to read that because I was like, you did this incredible thing where you took this beloved story and sliced off just the surface feel of it, where people were like, okay, well, it's set here, and it's kind of about this thing. But there was never any constitution that said he has to have a devil figure, uh, you know, a truly good-hearted law enforcement agent, and a bunch of people who are kind of caught in between those two forces. It could have been about anything, and it could continue to be about now. By all means, make something else, do something else. You don't have to make Kimi Fargo. But it was almost interesting to find him imprisoned by... Oh, I cracked Fargo, and now I can't get out well, of it. Well, I would agree with it, but I also think that TV has to be about something. You sure. have to have a logline. You have to have a set of ex- some expectations, um, even if it's changing season to season. And I do think that Noah, and I say this as a critic who covered him and having worked with him, the way his brain works, he, it actually is one of those brains that is, I think that it's helpful to have a framework. Like he's a problem solver. You know, well, not just a problem solver, but his ideas go to the, go to Mars and back. Right. And it's good to have a little bit of a structure Some around buckets that. buckets to fill. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you that know, I, I, but it, it also, I want to be clear, though, as well, I'm criticizing the season. One thing that I feel like I'm coming up against when I talk to people who are much bigger on this, higher on the season than I was, I'm glad we have it. There is nothing else like it. I mean, even in the finale, which I wasn't feeling, some of the shots on that road, um, the paper in the beginning, you know, the way it was overlaid, these are creative flights of fancy that... Um, some you could call them indulgences, but I'm just grateful we have them because other shows don't look like that. Other shows don't take those chances. Um, it feels a little bit heavier to have this conversation because it's not like we know there's a fourth season coming back and he gets another uh, run at the at the gold ring. It, it's strange to have a, a close to perfect second season and then a, a tough sec- third season. I think that, you know, in, in the to use the album analogy that we use sometimes – think pieces will be written that third season was best. You know, and, I, and I will disagree, absolutely. but it'll be a cool thing. And I say. think that's part of, part of a lar- larger conversation just about um, in this sort of interregnum period before Thrones comes back and just in this idea of like a uh, macro level, like oh, who's watching what show, that Fargo and Saul kind of existed in the same way of really respected but somewhat cordoned off dramas. You know, it, I don't feel like either really per- penetrated into this Everybody, I got to, whatever you're doing, stop and go watch this. I think part of that is because they were iterative, right? They were based essentially on something that had come before. And yep. Fargo season three is now the fourth version of a story that we know. So that's that's a lot to ask for. Fifth, if you ever get your hands on the original network pilot, broadcast pilot starring Edie Falco, 
as Marge Gunderson. I, was, it was no involved in 2000, that. 2002. Oh, yeah. who, who, who did that? I don't even remember. You can. It's on IMDb, but no they way. did try once before. Yeah, MGM was hot to do this, but it took them quite some time. Yeah, that's what a weird piece right? of like. You know, like it was right before, I think it was right before the Sopranos. What else can we get was out it of 2002? Fargo? Maybe it was even in, maybe it was earlier. Maybe it was right after the movie because I think it was a pre-Sopranos Edie Falco. Yeah, Allison, I thought wrote about this pretty well on 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 the Ringer yesterday about. Fargo and this notion of kind of filling in the gaps that Andy is talking about too where there's just a noble woman and there's a great villain and there's a a wild card figure and there's an aspect of crime and then there's this vision this execution of you know sincere intent overcoming this uh, demonic force and doing that three times in a row I think inevitably there's going to be some fatigue. I, I just think also you know the most compelling character was Nikki Swango and everything that she did was predicated on the idea that she was truly, madly, and existentially in love with Ray. Yeah. I didn't buy it. Right. I didn't buy it from the beginning. And the show asked us to believe that and go on this journey with them. And you're either in or you're out. You know, you either buy your ticket for the ride or you don't. You're either, or you, you watch the car, either get on the roller coaster with them and you feel it in your guts, or you watch the roller coaster go around and you're impressed to people who can do it. Sure. And that was kind of my feeling for much of the season. I was impressed by it, but I couldn't feel it. And I and I do think that, for me, that, that was a, that was, that was... I, was, I couldn't get over that. Yeah. All right. We're going to talk to Sean about his list of the best 25 movies in the millennium. But before we do, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Hotel Tonight. If you're like me and you are not so great at planning ahead, I've got good news for you. There's this awesome app. It's called Hotel Tonight, and it helps you find amazing hotel deals at the last minute. It sounds counterintuitive, but unlike flights... Hotel rates usually get cheaper at the last minute, and Hotel Tonight helps hotels sell their unsold rooms, allowing them to pass those deals along to you. These aren't last resort places. They are actually cool, top-rated hotels that you do want to stay in. And with so many awesome partner hotels in a ton of different countries, Hotel Tonight can help you find a great hotel almost anywhere. It's perfect for a spontaneous getaway or finally going on that trip you've been wanting to take for a while. I know that I often check Hotel Tonight if my wife and I want to take a quick staycation in Los Angeles. We want to go to the beach for a weekend. We want to get out of town, get up to Santa Barbara, go south to La Jolla, something like that. Hotel Tonight is awesome for that. Because even though the app's name is Hotel Tonight, you can book up to a week in advance. All it takes is 10 seconds, just three taps and a swipe. So go get in on these last minute killer deals and download the Hotel Tonight app now. Friends, it is time to talk about Sonos and the Sonos Playbase. This is how you turn your dingy living room into a cathedral of perfect audio, a home theater. When you think about home theaters, you think about the puffy movie seats and the fake popcorn stand in the back, and it's like a rich guy who doesn't have any friends, and he's just like, come to my theater. It's like, no, that's not what's happening here with this. This is how you turn your apartment, your house, whatever, into the, the home theater of your dreams. The Playbase is great. It just goes right underneath the television. It's built to sit underneath stands. There's no mounting required. And what it does is it, it just it just fills your room with pulse-pounding audio. So whether you're watching golf or House of Cards or playing Mario Kart or doing whatever you're doing on your television, all of a sudden it just gets expanded. It becomes this beautiful, rich audio experience. When it's not doing that, it also streams music. I don't really know what else you want from a device. Everything sounds better on Playbase. There's no wall, wall, wall mounting required, like I said. There's only one power cord and one optical cord, so you don't have to go nuts trying to plug it in everywhere. And you don't even have to read a manual. The Sonos app guides you through every step of setup. Everything sounds better on Playbase. See for yourself. Go to Sonos.com to learn more. That's S-O-N-O-S.com. 
Okay, we're back, Sean, Andy. Before we you know in a little bit, I'm going to talk to Andrew Goodadaro about good bad movies and whether or not these few good bad movie titles could be made in 2017. But Sean wants to talk about what he feels are good good movies. That's right. Good to great movies. Yeah. Great to exemplary movies. Solid movies. First I'm question in I have film. for you is, and I don't mean this in a self-reflective way, but because there's been a lot of variance on like what do we mean when we say best movies of the 20th? This is where I wanted to start too. Yeah. yeah. Let's so talk about this. When you heard that we did this, were you like, these guys are going to have... These jamokes. Yeah. Are they going to have a bunch of a bunch of awards fodder on the, on their on their lists? Yeah. What was when you say it was? Is there a movie that immediately jumps to mind? Like I, I this is obviously number one. Crash. I mean, did... Yes. This is is this not a crash podcast? <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's... You know, there was a movie that jumped to, to my mind right away. But even in looking at what Manola Dargis and Tony Scott did, and then especially listening to you guys, and given how well I know you both, and how idiosyncratic but also like respectable and thoughtful your lists were it kind of raised the question of what this pursuit is as you guys know i like to make a lot of movie lists that's something that is fun for me but also um you talked a little bit about the notion of rewatchability i think there is also a fine line between best and favorite yeah absolutely and what is the sort of critical scale of justice here like, are we identifying, like, what was an achievement versus what is something that just makes me feel alive? And the way that you guys talked about movies, it was movies that made you feel alive. I, I want to say also I'm really looking forward to your list because I am a big fan of your annual movie list that you make for your personal weblog. Um, <laughs> it's a Tumblr, Andy. Which we'll is blog. a crazy thing. <laughs> weblog? Is yeah. that how we're saying it? Which is an incredible, uh, passionate, personal project that you do every year. But it also made me excited because that means you remember. And right. I don't remember anything. Um, one of the reasons I can't do that is that's so untrue. This, the, well, I, I remember many so, things. So but, many of your movies were like these, like you were picking out like these film forum adventures that you went on. Well, know, I had to go on a I had to go on a by myself meeting an adventure with the Google machine to remember the movies of the year. Or certain, I mean, some of them I never forgot, but there were certain things that I just. And even when we got these great this great feedback, uh-huh. people were mentioning movies that I had yeah, would true. have liked to have considered. So. Anyway, that's all that's that's all prelude. I'm curious where you're at with this. Well, it's funny because obviously anytime I see what the New York Times list looks like, what your list looks like, what your list looks like, what say Lindsay Zolat, she put her list on Twitter last night and I looked at hers and I was Strong like, list. how can I make this different? Yeah. Which is the wrong impulse when you're trying mm-hmm. to be sincere about what you really feel. Um but I did look back at some of the lists I'd made in the past, and the truth is, is that I just don't feel the same way as I did then. Like mm. the the movies that I made number one at the time were wow. reflective of the moment, and they don't really mean anything. The only movie that I think holds the same power in my mind as when I first saw it is the movie that's my number one, which is There Will Be Blood, which is probably not the most interesting movie to sort of unpack, given that it was also Manolo and Tony's number one. I think fifty years from now, we'll probably look back and say this is a top five movie of the century. Um, if not the number one movie, because of what it represents, because of the story that it tells and the way that it's executed. Um, I think also cinema history loves a great man, and Paul Thomas Anderson is like this suitable great man telling a story about a great man. Yeah. Um, so I, that one is, you know, it's 10 years old this year. I think it's just as resonant for people. I think they can look back on it and they can put Trump on that movie. You know, they can put Barack Obama on that movie if they want to. They can put the story of commerce in America. They can put religion in America. There's all these different ways, to, these prisms to shoot it through. The story of milkshakes in America. Milkshakes, bowling. Imagine <laughs> all these these hallmarks. Paul Dano elite fans. So you, do you, do you only do one director per 
one director. You only directors only got one in, entry here. I put two PTA movies because oh, that it. was an arbitrary rule, but I followed it, and then I really I liked not. like Lindsay. Oh, yeah. and her list um, had two Linklaters, I believe, linked, which I really liked. And basically gave us like a don't at me about that on her list, which was funny. But yeah, I tried to mostly follow that with the exception of PTA, and I just put the master near the bottom of my top 25. Did you find yourself, when you were drawing from whatever databases you were doing from your own personal lists from the internet, um, was there a balance between genre? Was there a balance between like things you just adored, like say an almost famous, which is just a movie you can live with, versus say, how often do you watch It's Such a Beautiful Day? So it's such a beautiful day. I watch all the time, and the reason I watch it all the time is because it's probably the movie on this list that has taught me how to feel the best. And it's different. It was, you know, it was originally a uh, three short films that Don Hertzfeld shot over the course of the 2000s that he combined in 2012. And it's it's very idiosyncratic. It's essentially a lot of like line drawings um, that are narrated actions of a guy named Bill um, by Don himself. Really strange, really beautiful, really interesting movie that I recommend everybody check out. Everything else on here, I think, is a little bit less idiosyncratic, a little bit more classical. Okay. Um, there's a Coen Brothers movie. It's a serious man. Some For some people, you, the, the Coen Brothers movie should be No Country for Old Men. For some people, it should be The Man Who Wasn't There. Some like, had, uh, Shoemaker had O Brother. Oh Brother, Where yeah, Art Thou? Yeah. yeah, I think that's kind of a, it's a little bit of a personality test to which <laughs> Coen Brothers movie you pick. Um, I, I don't even want to start to unpack what a serious man says about you. Yeah, there's a storm coming. That's what it says. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of storms, uh, The Fog of War is number four for me. That's Errol Morris's documentary about Robert McNamara. I was surprised to not see that movie on more lists. Yeah, me too. I was surprised to not see... There were certainly not a lot of documentaries on these lists, uh, given that this has very been very much a century of documentaries. Um, but also, I don't know. I just think that that's a fascinating movie that tells the story of the previous century. And I don't... I, do you have an Errol Morris take? I, ha- I didn't have any docs in my list, not out of anything other than... I, I don't really frequently watch them, but Fog of War is obviously something that almost feels now like an, a, a time that you can understand better, even though it is about obfuscation and um, so many modern warfare techniques. I did notice that you had Mulholland Drive up very high on your list, which was something that I, I you know, was one of the, probably the movie that I was like, I can't believe I forgot to put Mulholland Drive on mine. Um, we it's, saw we're in a lynch moment, you know. Yeah, and it's such a lynch moment. Naomi Watts has been, you know, around a lot recently. Uh, do you know some of the other ones you had up in here? Did, was it hard for you to pick Social Network over Zodiac? It wasn't. I had a conversation with Bill Simmons about this yesterday, okay. and he said what Chris Ryan said about Zodiac is not true. The the David Fincher movie is the Social Network. It's my truth. So I'm very sorry. <laughs> uh, but that was interesting. I, the Social Network, I think, is just the, is fits in more into the category of the things you were describing yeah. to me, which is like if it's on TV, if it's on TNT. And it's 20 minutes in. I'm just, I'm in and I'm there to the end. I also just want to jump in on the documentary point. I just didn't consider any. It's the same way when I had to make top 10 lists for TV as a critic. I just didn't consider animated shows or reality shows because there are only so many spots. Yeah. Um, that makes me a poor uh, cinemaphile. Cinephile. No, I don't think so. I think, I think The Fog of War is the only documentary, as far as I know, in my top 25. And the reason it's there is because Errol Morris's movies are very filmic. Yeah. You know, the, well, he, he, he's doing something very specific. He invented a technology for interviewing. But I also think understanding that and watching documentaries in part, you know, keeping considering them in the same way you would consider a narrative feature, I think is a hallmark of a good film critic because you're seeing the world through a lens any particular year. Um, 
I choose not to do that, <laughs> but I, I'm glad that you did. There's one question I've had this since I really need to talk to you because I had Step Brothers and he had Anchorman. Mm-hmm. Sean, you have two incredible comedies. I don't actually one is is almost a tragedy in some ways. But you have Jackass number two and Borat on your list. Yeah, did you guys see those movies? Borat so should have been on Jackass number two is the hardest I've ever laughed in my life. That is exactly why it's on my list. I, I saw Jackass number two in a movie theater, and I felt like I was going to die. <laughs> and <the laughs> movies do not do that. And, it, and when you see 300 movies a year, you never feel that way. You never feel like the, I, am, I have been overtaken by this thing on a screen. You know, you can feel sad and you can feel moved and you can, it can, you know, light up your mind with ideas, but it can't physically take it over. Yeah. And Jackass 2 took it over. There's like, a really good video I saw. I can't remember what serious show. It might have been like Jim Norton or something like that. But uh, Louis C.K. is on with Knoxville and Louis is just talking about like how Jackass is the is like the best movie ever made or, or like the funniest comedy he had seen that decade or something and it's so great because Johnny Knoxville is like I can't believe this but he's just, Louis C.K. is just like yeah I mean it's just like I, it shouldn't work and it's the most ingenious thing I've ever but seen. But let's link them both because a minute ago we we're talking about Lucasfilm and their struggle to basically repackage something that we already love and make it feel kind of new or new enough to gross a billion dollars worldwide. Borat and Jackass when they came out felt radically new yeah and we could not believe they were happening we can't believe they got away with it and we couldn't believe how much we laughed and yeah. i feel like and, and, and the, the whiplash from borat to, to bruno which did not feel the same way just a few years later and then whatever's happened in sasha baron cohen's career because he can't get away with it again um it, borat should be on more lists it's exactly right both movies came out in 2006 they both feel impossible right now grenadar and I do a whole segment at the second half of this podcast where we just talk about, like, could you make Roadhouse in 2017? Yeah. It's wild to think you there's just no way you could make either of those movies now. No. This is it's an interesting thing because the concept of comedy. This has been a very weird century for comedy. I would say a lot of people went to what is my favorite Will Ferrell movie. I think he's probably the iconic comic performer mm-hmm. of this time. You know, some people will have Bridesmaids or they'll have Apatow movies. Um, but I think these kind of stunt laden idea-driven movies are more representative of where the culture's at. They're more representative of sort of YouTube culture. They're more mm-hmm. representative of Twitter. They're more representative of like the way people joke. They they presaged memes and all that other stuff. Jackass number two you, is like a you, blueprint for how to laugh. You can look at movies in the 21st century as either a cheapening of cinema or a democratization of cinema. Yeah. And I would say these movies make a strong argument for the latter. There's yeah, I agree. two more things I want to talk about before we wrap this up. One is the surprising Absence in the top 25, not until 40 for you, of a movie by Noah Baumbach. Did you make a top 40? I made a top 50, and I also added all the other movies that I left off. I'll share this on the internet oh okay. at some point. Okay. Um, and I'm sure I'll feel really bad about this list the minute I publish I, and, it. And I'm, trying, I'm not trying to make you feel bad about it, but I was stunned by that. Because I yeah. was just like, I feel like whether it was Francis Ha or whether it would be Squid and the Whale, that you would have Mistress a, America, also all, worthy. All, all of those movies are in my top 100 of the century i think the thing is for someone like him i think i think of this i thought of this very similarly with quentin tarantino taken together i would just if you said you have to sit down and watch all their movies consecutively right now i would do it in a heartbeat and i would be thrilled to do it i think about those movies plenty but individuated Mm -hmm. somehow they don't quite add up to a a massive experience that's how i felt about 21st century soderbergh I loved, I, loved I, every, I loved every one yeah. of them, but I couldn't think of one to put on. I felt very similar. I felt very similarly even about Wes Anderson, who I think established a world and a universe that was completely singular, but bit by bit 
doesn't feel as right to me. Right. Um, is like is Grand Budapest Hotel significantly better than the Royal Tenenbaums? Uh, well, those are the matter? two that I was. Those are the two best. Was but. there much debate for you about which Tarantino you have bastards in here? And that's my second best. But yeah, it was have... Kill Bill, Whole Bloody Affair before, and I took it out, and then I put it back, and then I took it out. Um, I think Inglorious Bastards seems like his most historical movie, so people lean towards that. Um, the the one we can wrap up on, and we, Andy and I talked about this briefly on Monday, but uh, all of us had 25th Hour in our top 10. 20th Hour, unimpeachable movie, but it really says a lot about us being. I did a bunch of white guys living in New York in the early 2000s. I didn't have it. That's not. It's not on. You don't have that in your top 10. No. Oh, I thought that was like number five for you. No. Oh. So you hate was a four-hour Taiwanese film that you made fun of me for, probably. Um, No, not at all. That's the. Let me. Let's just. We should probably end on this because this has been so fun, and I hope more people keep sending in their lists and doing this. And maybe we should consider doing it for music or something like that. Or or even television. People have said that they want to hear your TV lists. We should do it. But all I was going to say is, if it didn't make our twenty-five list, it is not safe to assume it's because we hated it. It is because we were doing this absurd thing and. But I, I, but I will say, uh, the reason we were inspired to do this in the first place is because the New York Times did something that should have pissed everyone off and pissed some people off. But in general, it's made people feel very joyful and optimistic and uh, um, generous about movies. And I feel like it's set people that's to rare. watching a lot of movies, which that's is really it. cool. I saw a lot of reaction to their list that was like, I got to check that out. And to be clear, I still won't go see movies, but I used to. <laughs> you're the and best. And it was a great time. <laughs> it's like, you have to no, like, you're, you're the guy. Everybody now knows the reason I don't go out to see the movies because they could hear one of them in the background of this podcast. <laughs> Thank you for your tolerating that, uh, everyone. Okay, we're going to take a break there. Uh, I'll be right back. I'm talking to Andrew Goddard. Please stick around for this half of the podcast because Andrew really is very, very funny about battle. Battleship, Speed 2, Roadhouse. She's all that. Did you guys talk about Michael Hanukkah's The White Ribbon? No, we didn't. <laughs> Would that get made? 2017. <laughs> Silent Light is not the other one. Like five hours in uh, Mennonite, yeah, Mexico. Yeah. All right. Uh, Andy and I will be back on Monday probably with some Twin Peaks talk. You know, you never know with us. We'll maybe try to hit that Thrones trailer. Although, if you, don't, if you need to know about the Thrones trailer... Yeah. Boy, do I have we two have some, people who can tell you friends. about that. Jason and Mallory have an incredible director's commentary, 12 minutes long, breaking down every frame of the the Game of Thrones uh, Season 7 second trailer. That's on the Ringer's YouTube page. It's on our Ringer Twitter account, probably on the Facebook page. Andy and I will be back Monday. Thanks, as always, to our good buddy, Sean Fennessy. Thank you so much, guys. Peace. Great job, Bransky's. Okay, now I am joined by the Ringer's Andrew Goddardaro, who has also become... The high priest of good bad movies. <laughs> good bad. No. Did you go to a seminary for that, or is that just like you, you, it, did you minor yeah. in that? It, no, it was it was uh, six weekends, um, <laughs> and I I couldn't talk, and I just had to watch Roadhouse and Con Air on loop. I wonder what that. That's an interesting clockwork orange. Like what would happen to a person <laughs> if they just watched Roadhouse? Yeah, no, they they pried our eyes open. It I'll was, tell you, I'll tell you what would deal. have happened. They would have a pretty good sense of right and wrong in this world. <laughs> exactly. Um, Andrew's been writing about and editing pieces about good bad movies all week on The Ringer. He's got a monumental list, the top 50 good bad movies, which are oh, um yeah. on is on the ringer.com. He has uh overseen the production of pieces which I think are inevitably leading to several greenlit films. It sounds like Con Air with Gina I, Rodriguez is Yeah, a, Gina Rodriguez is in. This is, is, a is go like a picture. Uh, yeah. Like it's basically like the Rihanna Lupita Nyong'o thing that happened a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I think I think everyone's getting in on this. So, um, Andrew, I wanted to ask of the top fifty that you did, 
Was there, I imagine that the response to a list like this is different than if you're just like, these are the best movies of the 25, these are the 25 best movies of the millennium or whatever, because Mm -hmm. people are arguing for a very specific criteria, right? They're like, this is, I've seen some people be like, your your first mistake is to say that Con Air is a bad movie in the first place. Or what's the, the difference in the feedback to this list to other lists that you've been a part of? So, I mean, usually lists and, you know, I've, I've, done my fair share of rankings um usually the most popular complaint is you missed uh blank yeah um this yeah it's a little it's a little more varied because the some people are a little offended that we're calling certain movies bad to even begin with right even though we're calling them good in a way um for example shay serrano has not been bothering me all week about the fact that Bad Boys 2 is on our top 50 list. He has not been? He has bothered me all week. Oh, he has been, yeah. He is slandering me. <laughs> um, I'm surprised he, you still work here, honestly, after you put uh, <laughs> just one of the guys on there, which is like Bill thinks is better than Godfather 2. Hey, that's that's straight from Sean Fennessey's mouth. <laughs> I know, mouth. I know. <laughs> um, yeah, but so people are people are more so being like, how, could, how dare you call Con Air a bad movie? Um, which is... It, it's a hard thing to argue with on on the first note, just because <laughs> it's like I I can't argue with your your uh, personal passion, um, but you know I I think we did our best in coming up with some strict rules for a pretty uh, vague concept. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, is there anyone that public opinion has convinced you should have been included on the list that wasn't? Um, Armageddon, which. Hmm is very fair i think i think um to me armageddon didn't make the list because it to me it's considered i consider it an actually good action movie yeah um but you know some people and super super plausible yeah oh yeah i mean why wouldn't you send a bunch of oil guys up onto an asteroid right um (laughs) but yeah so so it's it's that one I heard the most, and there was a lot of uh, John Claude Van Damme stands out there who Interesting. came Interesting. out of the woodwork and were like, "How could you only have one John Claude movie on this list?" They wanted like fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Andrew and I are going to play a game right now, which is sort of to go through a couple of films that are on his list and uh, figure out whether they would get made in two thousand and seventeen, uh, because part of the charm of this list I think is like it feels like a, a real bygone era of when Hollywood Hollywood still wastes money unlike any industry but it's it, it almost it seems like a, a kinder gentler time when they used to just throw money away on these things that they knew must be bad but figured hey it'll find some kind of audience right and like, that just uh, doesn't seem to happen anymore because they're too busy spending like half a billion dollars on Han Solo and firing the director with exactly, two weeks exactly. left you know yeah like the we're Hollywood right now is just minimizing risk to the point where you know nothing gets made right yeah and which is it kind of sucks because there's like there used to be such a sort of multiplicity of experiences you could have with movies and now it's like there's either blockbuster or awards fair or like horror movies um so let's go through a couple of these movies and let's figure out whether they would be made right now I wanted to start with speed two (laughs) which uh I I have to come forward and say I deeply care about Speed Cannon 
and the Speed okay. Cinematic Universe. Okay. And this was Why? a huge <laughs> because I think Speed is the first Speed is incredible, and I think Great that film. Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock's characters in the first Speed had something. Like, they mm-hmm. had something real. And it really, really, this was one of the first times where I realized, like, the world isn't fair is when <laughs> Jason Patrick took over the lead role uh, in, in, in Speed for Speed 2. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's Although, not Speed without Jack Traven. Yeah. Yeah, it really isn't. And, and uh, you know, I do, I do applaud their, their idea to, like, change vehicles, though. Literal vehicles. Yeah. Um, I would have liked to have seen Speed Three, because what, where would they have gone next? I would have been the world was their oyster. I just wonder whether (laughs) or not it would have been Alex Officer Alex Shaw, played by Jason Patrick, who was joining Annie, or whether it would have been they bring back Jack Treven. Yeah, I think I think Jack. I think he he had too much stress on that bus. (laughs) You know what? I'm not going on cruises. The bus was rough. I can't remember. (laughs) Do they explain in the beginning of Speed Two where Jack is? Did they just Uh, break up? I. I couldn't tell you. I, d- I don't think so, though. Because I like to imagine that the relationship didn't work out because if you take, a- that if you take away the adrenaline of, yeah. of, of like being right. on a bus that can't go below 55. <laughs> right, then, they just went to dinner yeah, and Yeah, if you're just to going about. to coffee and every time you are like at like a, a window at a restaurant, you look up and you see a bus go by, it's kind <laughs> of like, it, it's, it must be like drugs or something. It's like, oh, it was, turns out we were just heroin lovers. Exactly. <laughs> Um, okay, so what what do you think are the main roadblocks to Speed Two being made in 2017? Um, so, well, I guess first of all, are are we going to talk about this in a vacuum? As no. as it, I mean, however if, you want to do it, you're the you're you're the the master here. All right, so I mean, I th- I think the uh, maybe the biggest roadblock is one you don't you don't like you said you don't have Keanu signed on right and that. That's a tough thing. Right. Um, and I guess you do have a villain, though. Okay. And I, I think the Willem Dafoe signing on to this kind of ups the speed, the uh, the attractiveness of a sequel to speed. Right. Yeah, Willem Dafoe, who, and like, around this time, so this is 97, is about 11 years on from the glories of Platoon. But it's just like, obviously, a really highly respected actor, you know, now and then. And I think he had a lot of, a lot of big boots to fill with Dennis Hopper, uh, who's mangled hand, <laughs> bomb crazy, you know, like, uh, villain was, was really like some of the secret sauce along with Jeff Daniels in the first speed. Yeah. Uh, I do love how there was a time in the mid-90s, you know, at coming off of, uh, I remember this really started with Die Hard because Die Hard was such an easy. Uh, ex- you can explain Die Hard in five yeah. seconds. It was such a good elevator pitch um, that they were just like, just put Die Hard on a boat, or just put <laughs> Die Hard on a bus, or just put Die Hard on a submarine. And there were movies like that. I do kind of long for a simpler time like that. Yeah. Um, so I th- I think s- Speed. If we're saying that Speed is a literal sequel. And we're acting as if Speed One exists, and let's say Speed One came out in like 2012. Sure. So it's so now it's a couple of years later. Um, Speed One made like 350 million dollars on a 30 million dollar budget. Yeah. In, so in I think Speed Two is is probably getting made. Yes. Yeah. For that reason alone. Yeah, and also like they probably would have done whatever it took to keep. Uh, 
to keep Keanu. You know what I mean? Like that would have just been Keanu and Sandra Bullock at this point would be the equivalent of Jennifer Lawrence and Chris Pratt, which we found out is not always a good thing. <laughs> yeah. But that's like what we're talking about in terms of their popularity. Yeah. So I, I, I think Speed 2 is getting made. Okay. This is um, also an interesting note just I want to throw out there is that uh, we don't talk enough about how Jason Patrick uh, stole Julia Roberts from Kiefer Sutherland at the altar. No, we don't talk about that. <laughs> I want I want this to actually just turn into a podcast about that. <laughs> he was, and, and, and Speed 2, he was, I think, coming off of Rush, which was sort of his big, like, shot at an Oscar where he plays an... Un, uh, uh, undercover cop who's also kind of messes around with drugs and everybody thought he was kind of going to be the next uh, the the next big kind of like d- character like the be- next big like best actor uh, in in the world yeah. and you know he made Geronimo and then he made Sleepers and then he made Speed 2 and it was kind of like he was like yeah I, I can do the dramatic parts but I can also <laughs> do action roles and it just was not a not a good look and he doesn't really ever come back yeah. from that did uh did speed Two ruin multiple careers well defoe's fine wes anderson was made fine. sure of that and sandy, sandy bullock, bullock you can't keep fine. sandy bullock down jason patrick did do narc which was very well respected but since then has pretty much been a character actor although a very good one since yeah. speed Two. yeah um I'm, I'm mainly talking about director jan debont well, who the thing is, is that DeBont's in the Hall of Fame, man. Because DeBont I, made yeah. Twister, he made Speed 2, and he, he shot filmed, Die Hard. Yeah, he shot yeah. Die Hard. Yeah. But, like, after Speed, or going into Speed 2, is is Jan DeBont like, okay, this guy's going to be working for the next 20 years making action movies. Oh, I, I mean, it's absurd that he's not. Let's just take a quick DeBont, let's yeah. I, I, a quick DeBont filmography look here. It's sick. Gosh, he directed Lara Croft in 2003, and he has not directed a movie since then. Yeah. He starts out and goes speed twister. He's arguably the most successful director in the world in 1996 after Twister comes out. He does speed two right after that. Then he does The Haunting. Then he does Lara Croft, and then he hasn't done anything since then. And as, um, as, let's see what he did. Did he keep shooting stuff? Eh, he's been a little bit, no, not really. He hasn't even been like director of photography since then. But what a what a run for him! Like in the mid nineties, late 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 eighties, he did uh, Die Hard, and Flatliners, and Basic Instinct. Basic Instinct, oh. yeah, yeah. He's he's unassailable in the nineties, but it's a little sad to see what happens post Speed Two. <laughs> um, so what's what's the next one we're gonna see if we, we get made in two thousand seventeen? The next one, it's a pretty recent movie by goes by the name of Battleship. Yeah, so this is an important film to me. <laughs> um, do you want to give give your little breakdown of Battleship? Yeah, so Battleship was they. This is the sort of I don't know if you would say peak because I'm never surprised by like what they will find to make a movie adaption of. But yeah, um, Battleship is obviously an adaptation of a board game in which two people yeah. sit across a divider and put pegs into holes. So it doesn't necessarily feel rich with story. Uh, that being said. Peter Berg said, challenge accepted. And yeah. cast Taylor Throw Kitsch, some aliens into Alexander mix. Skarsgård, Rihanna, Jesse Plemons. It's basically like Friday Night Lights, it's, yeah. Rihanna, and True Blood <laughs> on a Somehow boat. Matt Saracen didn't make the cast, which I can't I'm so believe upset it. about. I can't, couldn't believe that. And um, gosh, who's the sort of uh, the old grizzled... Who's, who's uh, Skarsgård's dad? Uh, are we talking about Liam Neeson? Yes, that's right. 
Yeah. Um, so you got a lot of you got a lot of great actors working in this. But yep. the the thing that's crazy is that like I could definitely see this getting made tomorrow. Yes. But one hundred percent. It's it is sort of like you would just say to somebody like, okay, here's your here's the reason why not. You know, here's the reason why not to make this. But I kind of enjoy Battleship. Yeah, you know, it's it's not that bad. I mean, it's it's fun and I think the cast itself, just the ensemble, is part of it. Um you just have these these people that you're so you're so attached to because of Friday Night Lights, and yeah. then you throw in Liam Neeson and Rihanna, and it's like okay. <laughs> a lot um, of a lot of ACDC on the soundtrack. You get Jerry Ferreira being very like overwhelmed by the situation as as one of the Navy Navy guys in it, and the the conflict is just so absurd. And you know they're, they're like at a Pearl Harbor uh, little inauguration. Celebration thing. Yeah, it's like a memorial for all of a sudden aliens come out of nowhere. Rihanna as Petty Officer Cora Weps Rakes has like some of the best lines. She mostly just says like boom a bunch of times. Yeah, she goes like, yeah, duck. (laughs) You know, like um, she gets quick cuts. This was also uh what a run for Kitsch. I think he lost a billion dollars in this in this time period. Yeah. (laughs) So he did Friday comes out of Friday Night Lights and in 2012 made Savage's Battleship and John Carter. And yep. I don't. I can't even. Co- I don't know if they can compute the amount of money that got lost on those three movies. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they really tried to make Kitsch happen, and I wanted him to happen. I think I, st- I'm st- I still have Kitsch stock. Yeah. Well, how did you feel about How did you feel about True Detective Kitsch? Uh, he was fine. I thought he was underused. Like I thought if you were going to introduce all those parts of his character, he needed to like to work it out a little bit more. Yeah. So they should have chosen to make it about Farrell or Kitsch. Um, mm. One of those guys should have like died early in the season to sort of spin things along. Uh, okay. I felt like you spent too much time with both of them uh, over the course of the season. He was fine in Lone Survivor. Uh, yeah, you know, I think he's gonna have a, a comeback, whether it's like Granite Mountain, Hot Shots, or something. You know, like yeah, we kind of need to forget. Thing. He's playing about David John Koresh. Carter. That could be a big one for him. That would be cool. Yeah. Okay, so we definitely think Battleship would get made despite the fact that it lost like half a billion dollars. Yeah, I mean, there like there's a movie about emojis, so sure, that's right. Like, there's there's no limit here. Um, okay, so what's the next one? The next one, let's do uh, Roadhouse. Yes. Um, probably my favorite good bad movie. You're right. Um, you you are right. <laughs> <laughs> it shouldn't be favorite. It's just the best. Now I know yeah. that it didn't win, right? It didn't win for mathematical reasons. Okay. Um, but it I I think in terms of uh personal preferences. I would say it's almost like a March Madness where like the best team loses in the semis. Yeah. yeah. It's exactly. just like you, you know, like sometimes that happens, but it's still it has all everything you want from a champion. Yeah. So Patrick Swayze as kind of John Taffer um from Bar Rescue. Um <laughs> I mean, basically, right? Like, he's, yeah, that's actually he's a really just, good way of looking just, at it. He's just cleaning up bars, yeah, um, which he's extremely well known for. Although he doesn't have a reality show like John Taffer does, right? Like, people are just like, "Oh, that's that's Dalton." Yes, yeah. even Je- the, blind blues guitarist Jeff Healy is like, "That's Dalton." Knows him immediately. Yeah, he knows him by his scent. <laughs> um, yeah, so he goes to a bar in in Missouri to clean up and. The town is extremely small to the point that they don't seem to have a police department. 
and the uh, town seems to be run by the wealthiest man in town yes. who <laughs> who kind of just does whatever he wants and takes collection as if he's Don Corleone. Yeah. Um, it is, I mean, in, in that sense, Roadhouse is is basically the 80s godfather. Yeah. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to bring up a couple things about Roadhouse. Okay. Um, one of the reasons it would not get made in 2017 is that we have we have lost something over the years about just what an R-rated movie can be. Mm-hmm. And the levels of nudity, sex, and really, really disturbing, gratuitous, drawn-out, nauseating, but also exhilarating violence in this movie yeah. is like... I don't even think that they, I don't know, I can't think of an action movie that I've seen other than The Raid in the last few years. <laughs> the, the, the violence in Roadhouse is closer to Green Room than it is any other oh, like yeah. blockbuster movie. And it's I think, yeah. so violent. It also, there's not like a real style to it either. So no, it's, it's just, just guys who are like oiled up, up having yeah. 10 minute karate fights by the banks of a lake. <laughs> yeah. Just throat rips. <laughs> yeah, throat rips. A lot of like just kicking dudes in the knees, like long, like Sam Elliott puts his hair up in a man bun and just blows out a bunch of guys' ACLs. I, you know, do you think on its story alone, forget like the, the rating, forget the, mm-hmm. the violence story, a notorious bouncer takes back a small Missouri town. What level of star would you need to have attached to get this greenlit? Um, so you'd, you'd probably need like Tom Cruise. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say the rock, but yeah, the problem is if the rock did it, I would be worried about it being like PG 13 and it's just not as good. Yeah. I don't, I think you're right that they, they would have a hard time duplicating the gratuitousness of this movie. Yeah. Um, I was also thinking earlier today that, that Channing Tatum might work. Oh my god, dude! I can't believe you just said that. That's Why? Because that's really smart, <laughs> right? Like he could do it. But would you want like a straight Roadhouse, or would you want Channing Tatum doing like Twenty One Jump Street Roadhouse? Yeah. Um, see, my thing, my thing with all of these is that I, I don't think you can like wink at the camera while doing them, um, just because it does. It's kind of the same thing with. Uh, the new Baywatch, where they, I think they tried to be a little too smart about what they were doing, right? And you can like feel it, feel it being made, rather than if they had just literally made an episode of 1990 Baywatch, it would have been a better movie. Now, our producer Zach Mack does chime in to say that The Rock essentially did do Roadhouse with Walking Tall, but I yeah. would submit to Zach, you need to watch Roadhouse again because Walking <laughs> Tall is about like saving a family right like it's like got like moral fiber yeah roadhouse is essentially about like killing dudes he's a mercenary yeah and Um, and like he has a code but that code is like like flexible it's a malleable code yeah his thing is his thing is be nice until it's time to not be nice. That's actually exactly what his code That's is. That's exactly his code. And there is a lot of wiggle room in yeah. between those things. Like, Roadhouse like is also like an underrated Bad News Bears type sports story because he kind of he has like a, a group of like shaggy dog bouncers that he trains. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just. Yeah, he teaches them. Yeah. Uh, Roadhouse. So what, what's our verdict? I don't think that this is not high concept enough, but. Um, 
but I, I just feel like if you got a big enough star and I just would worry that it would ultimately be like too nice. Yeah. I uh I don't think Roadhouse is getting made okay. in twenty seventeen. Okay. All right, what's our next one? The next one is She's All That. Okay. All right. Classic rom com. Um from the very late nineties. So Freddy we did Prince. a little She's All That for the director's commentary videos that we made, and you can find those uh, on the Ringer's YouTube channel, on our Twitter account, and on our site, where a bunch of us sat around, watched Roadhouse fight scene, watched uh, a scene from Anaconda. We watched a scene from She's All That. And this is going to yep. be weird, because you'd think it's like based on Shakespeare, right? Or no, it's is it based on Shakespeare, or is it based on My Fair Lady? My Fair Lady, right? Yeah. I forgot. Which which is the one that's like a Shakespeare one? Uh, now I can't think of it. Is that 10 um, Things I Hate About You? Yes, yeah. that's 10 Things I Hate About You. Um, okay, so it's based on My Fair Lady. You think it's a classic story. But I do kind of think that you would have to do something like gender switch this to make it work in 2017. Absolutely. You have to be a woman who's like, I want to, I'll pick the dorkiest dude and make him into prom king. Mm. This, this movie is, um, like I, I rewatched it and it is way crasser yeah. than I remember. Yeah, it man. It is like the height of, um, 90s like masculinity kind of um and just like before before wokeness ever set in yeah and it's it's the the characters in it when you see them physically are like oh it's like paul walker and freddie prince and they seem pretty unassuming and they're like pretty chill you know like but they are like there is like an insidious kind of like yeah her ass isn't nice enough to like you know like yeah. warrant my attention it's it's pretty tough <laughs> it's yeah it's like the the scene at, which i think is the one you guys watched where they're going around being like okay well who's who's the girl who's a train wreck enough that this bet for you to turn them into prom queen right. is going to be so hard and they they go around just like ripping apart girls as they walk by i know it's hard to watch, kind of. This was a movie that birthed, like, I mean, the 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 depth of bench here is Warriors-esque. Freddie Prince Jr., Rachel Lee Cook, Matthew Lillard, Paul Walker, Kevin Pollack, coming off the usual suspects at the time, Anna Paquin, <laughs> Kira Culkin, Kieran Culkin, Usher, Little Kim, Gabrielle Union, DeLay Hill, and Clea Duvall, plus Tim Matheson. That's yeah. that's quite a cast. Yeah, no, um, the cast is incredible. So you think, do, what do you think would have to happen to make this today? Um, so one, I'm, I'm extremely, uh, hesitant to say that this would get remade no matter what, just because I feel like Hollywood doesn't touch rom-coms anymore. Right. Um, right. Or it has to be like much higher concept than this. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I don't think it's going to happen on that level. Um, I think you're right that a, a gender swap is probably the only way. Yeah. Um, and so who, who are like to early 20s like will we get selena gomez to be in this um another thing is I, f- I feel like the the whole construct of like jocks versus nerds doesn't really exist anymore like the lines between the archetypes been blurred um so that on that it's not as much of a universal thing as it was in the late 90s right absolutely yeah I, I, which is it's 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 almost so hard to imagine um 
th- because the the biggest possible like return from a movie like this would just not warrant the stress of how to figure out all the all all these characters that you're talking about. I kind of just can't imagine it getting made today. Yeah. Um another another factor, would it would it be better as a Netflix series? Well, it would, would be Would that happen? It would be I think I think it would be actually quite popular as a Netflix series. I think yeah. one of these 90s romantic comedies set at high school should get that treatment. What do you do when the 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 wallflower becomes the prom king or queen though? What's season 2? Yeah, that's true. Well, or do you just make it like a limited series that just happens to be 6 hours long or something? <laughs> yeah, the the idea of like a high school version of Big Little Lies is kind of funny to me. That is pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> like, and then it's just over. It yeah. was really... Um, yeah, so I could see it like that. Um, that would that would actually be really fun for me. Okay. Um, maybe like a like a Riverdale-type situation. Okay. So um, we're definitely remaking... We can, we can get Battleship going. Oh, yeah, that's instant. We could get Speed 2 going if Speed 1 had come out in, like, 2013 or something. Yeah, it's, it's got a lot of money behind it, so. Roadhouse? No. It's really hard. Like, maybe Blumhouse would do it for, like, $5 million and let you do what you wanted, but it would just be... It would be... Unless you had it, like, Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez are making it, or <laughs> The oh Rock... Oh, God, sign me up. Or The Rock would be in it, and he could... But that would probably be a little bit nicer... Yeah, I do, I do want to throw out. You said Channing Tatum. I wouldn't wouldn't mind seeing Swole Gyllenhaal do do a Ooh. Roadhouse remake. Ooh, yes, I'm into that. Yeah, maybe I... maybe get Reffin to direct it. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Only Roadhouse forgives. Oh um, my god! Was there one more movie that you thought we could get greenlit? Um, no, because the other movie I was going to bring up is White Chicks, and that's just a yeah, hard yeah. no. I feel like we've we've established some parameters with our <laughs> she's all that conversation. Okay, you know what? We have a pretty high batting average here, Andrew. This has been awesome. Uh, you can read everything that Andrew has written and edited about the good the good bad movies week on the Ringer right now. Uh, we'll tweet it out. This has been really cool, Andrew. We'll have to have you on again soon. But thanks for yeah, joining let's do me, it. man. Thanks, Chris. Okay, thanks for listening. We'll be back on Monday. We'll be talking Twin Peaks and more. Please check out Good Bad Movies Week on TheRinger.com. You can check out me, Andy, and Sean's list of the best 25 movies of the millennium on our various Twitter pages. We'll also share that through at the Watch Pod. And please check out Binge Mode to get caught up in Game of Thrones. We've got the Game of Thrones live show at the Largo July 11th. You can buy tickets through SeatGeek. And we have a Twitter show after every episode of Game of Thrones debuting July 16th. Bye. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Sonos and the Sonos Playbase. The Sonos Playbase will turn your living room into a home theater like that. There's one power cord. There's one optical cord. There's an app that guides you through setup. You don't need a manual. All you need is the desire to have everything you're watching on your television sound like you're watching it in a home theater. Everything sounds better on Playbase. Video games, sporting events, television shows, movies, see for yourself. Go to Sonos.com, S-O-N-O-S.com to learn more. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Redbox. School is out for summer. Redbox has you covered with video games to keep you entertained 
all season. With over 40,000 locations nationwide, you can rent and return anywhere. Better yet, you'll get a free one-night game rental from Redbox when you use the promo code WATCH. Swing by a box in your neighborhood, or if you want to make sure the game you want is there when you arrive, reserve it online at redbox.com slash games. Offer is valid through July 6, 2017, subject to additional terms. Charges apply for additional nights. Payment card required. Getting into video games has never been so easy. 